0: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where everybody that's on Facebook chats books, and we are currently reading advanced copies of books and chatting with the authors pre-publication. I recently added another early read. For April, we will be reading Linwood Barclay's new fabulous thriller, Take Your Breath Away, and meeting with him on Zoom. I am in the process of scheduling several more. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Rosie Walsh about the love of my life. Rosie is the author of the international bestseller, Ghosted. The book was published in 35 languages and has sold more than 1.5 million copies. She came to writing after a career in factual television, which took her to some of the remotest places on Earth. She wrote her first novel while living in South America, where she met her partner, George. They now live in Devon in the UK with their two young children. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad,
0: welcome rosie how are you today
2: i'm very well i'm uh, sitting in a in a lovely room with a lovely view looking out over the late afternoon sun here in devon how are you
0: i am really great as well and i'm super excited to speak with you because i loved ghosted so much and then i was thrilled to pieces you had another book coming out and i loved it equally as well so i can't wait to talk about the love of my life
2: thank you that's uh, it's it's nice to hear when when somebody when so many people have loved your first book it's Absolutely terrifying bringing out the second great deal of pressure I put myself under to write something that people would love as much
0: Well, I do think that is really hard when you've had a first book that has resonated so well with people to then worry about the second one coming out into the world, but I mean a GMA pick and I've seen so many great reviews, so it's obviously doing quite well, which is wonderful.
2: Yes, it has been joyous actually the the, the process of writing this thing was pretty torturous. <laughs> so-
0: I am really, really, really
2: thrilled that it's it's turned out so well because you just don't know when you're you know when you're deep in process, it you know it really there is every it, it feels just as likely this will be the worst book you've ever written as it will you know the best and you know anything that could turn into a bestseller.
0: Well, I have so many questions for you, but before we dive into those, I'd love for you just to give a quick synopsis of the Love of My Life for those that won't have read it yet.
2: Mm. So, the Love of My Life is the story of Emma and Leo who. To the outside world would seem to be the perfect couple. They're both successful in their careers. Emma is a marine biologist and Leo writes obituaries for a London broadsheet newspaper. They've got a lovely daughter. They live in a ramshackle old house in a really beautiful part of London. And, you know, they have have plenty of friends and family. You know, all seems well. However, when we meet them, Emma is waiting to find out if her cancer treatment has worked. And Leo is dealing with his, his many feelings in the way he knows best, which is to write her obituary in secret. But this, of course, turns out to be uh, something of a disaster, because in the, in the process of basic fact checking about his wife's life, Leo discovers that Emma is not who she says she is. What follows is a really traumatic journey for Leo, who is um, discovering that the love of his life is a story, no more than a story. And for Emma, who is forced to confront a past so awful that she spent her entire adult
0: life trying to bury it. So I was on the edge of my seat as I was reading, dying to know what her secret was and how everything was going to unfold. How did you come up with the idea for this one?
2: So the way I conceive each book is different every time. But I think what unites all of them is, uh, and I think probably any book that's ever been written, is that writers, I believe, have a part of their brain that sort of lights up. You'd be able to see it in a functional MRI scan that just lights up when they hear or see something that could be the seed of an idea. And for me, that that activation happened at a dinner about nine years ago. I have to be honest, it was a pretty disastrous dinner. There was no chemistry between us and the you know the couple that we were trying to sort of make friends with because we'd just moved to a new town. Um, the conversation was pretty dry, but the the guy in this in this couple mentioned that he was writing an obituary and my interest was immediately piqued. and what I didn't realize and actually a lot of people don't realize is that obituaries are almost all written in advance. And when you think about it it makes perfect sense because you know they're generally published within an hour or two of the person dying. So of course they've been prepared. But I had not realized that I'd not put two and two together and I was instantly fascinated and I started, I sort of glazed glazed over and sort of left the conversation at the table and started thinking about, you know, what it, what it means to try and tell the story of somebody's life and how much agency we as people who are being written about, you know, have over our stories. And I just grabbed my phone and I wrote an email to myself that just said, a writer starts researching somebody's life discovers that they're not who they say they are, and a few months after that it became obituary writer starts researching his wife's life and discovers she's not who she says she is and as soon as I had that, I knew that I'd got what I'd been longing for really, which was another story about ostensibly about love, but bound up in a really dark fast-moving mystery and so the premise for the book has remained constant since then. you know my my elevator pitch has not changed. <laughs>
0: I was wondering that if as you wrote it and kind of delved into it, if things had changed. I also had another question for you. Not long before I read your book, I watched the New York Times obituary. Well, it's actually, it's a documentary about the obituary writers for the New York Times called Obit. Have you watched that? I have,
2: and it wasn't available over here. So I had to, um, (laughs) I had to beg and plead with the, uh, with the filmmaker to let me see it. And, and she did. And I'm so grateful. What was great about it, actually, was, was that there was nothing new in it for me. And I know that for anyone else watching it, it would have been fascinating and a real eye-opener. But for me, actually, it is, even though I loved it, I thought it was a beautifully made film, it, it, it gave me a bit of confidence in my writing and made me realize that I was on the right track and that the research I've been doing was you know, in the right direction and that I had managed to capture Ah, the essence of that, you know, that most fascinating of worlds, which is, you know, largely unexplored and generally ignored. You know, when I went into the Daily Telegraph in London to spend time on their obits desk, they kept apologizing. God, sorry, this is so boring. You know, there's not much going on. And I just don't think they had any idea how fascinating their work is. Because of course, it's not about death or dying. It's about life and living.
0: I agree. I just thought it was the most interesting documentary, and I watched it with my teenagers and my husband, and we were all completely enthralled with the process and the fact that what you just said earlier, which is that most of these obituaries for famous people or notable people are already written, and all they have to do is kind of add in the final details. I just thought that was so interesting. They could go back and go through all these filing cabinets and pull out things that had been written for 20 years about somebody. It's really interesting.
2: Yeah, And what's lovely about that is that the filing cabinets where stock obituaries are filed are still physical um, because it would take years for, the, for all of the information that's collected to be digitized. You know a lot of these um, stock obituaries are just a collection of pre- of you know, newspaper clippings from decades ago. And I love that. I love rifling through you know decades of fascinating people in their lives and yet, and you know all of them were still alive they were all still alive, just these collections of, of press clippings and articles and thoughts and half-written pieces. It's really fascinating, you know, and, and to see some of them being written up quite heavily, you know, 30 years ago, which suggests to me that they perhaps suffered a serious illness 30 years ago, hence being written up. And that's, that is the life of the obituary writer. They, have, they live in a state of sort of feverish preparedness for just about anyone to die. So you know it doesn't matter how young they are if 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 anyone's remotely famous they probably got a stock obituary and if they become ill or cancel a public engagement then they will definitely have a stock obituary because you know that the, the, the news desk will be thinking what's happened you know why 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 have they not appeared for their gig or their football match or whatever but the obituary write, writer
0: or editor will be thinking oh, i better get them on file quickly <laughs> <laughs> it's just fascinating. I really, I have paid so much closer attention to obituaries when famous people have died ever since I watched that. So then, of course, your book came along, and I thought, how funny, you know? I just watched this, and now we have the same topic. It's it's really interesting, and I think the world always works that way. I find out when I find out more about one thing, then suddenly it's it's more places for me. Let's talk about the GMA book selection. That had to be so exciting. How did you find out? What has that been like? I mean, what a roller coaster! Um- <laughs>
2: So my life the last few months has been pretty chaotic because we moved from a city to the countryside, and the house that we were buying uh, wasn't ready, so we had to live in a rented place for a few months. And my four-year-old started school, and that like a lot happened during that time. You know, we um, we also had a couple of really difficult bereavements. Like so, so much has been going on that I've I've really not been focused very much on my on my writing career. I've been just very much sort of heads down in the trenches of parenthood. And I had a meeting with everyone at my publisher, Viking. Oh, I don't know. It was about three months ago. And, you know, they mentioned the book clubs that they were pitching to. And I sort of nodded politely. And, you know, okay, whatever. Because in a million years, I didn't imagine, you know, imagine that I'd be picked. And then I remembered a couple of weeks later, oh, yes, they said that if GMA came through, then it would, you know, it would be by the end of this week. And it was 5 p.m. on a Friday. So I just thought, yeah. You win some, you lose some. I guess it's not happening this time round. You know, and I wasn't surprised. It was it was just disappointing, but I wasn't surprised. And then a bit later, I checked my emails because, of course, it wasn't five pm in the states; it was only midday. (laughs) And I had an email from the head of publicity at at Viking, and you know, the news was in the subject line, so you know, there was no mistaking what had happened. But I, I still didn't believe it, and I read the email four or five times before just holding my phone out to my partner and. My poor partner, I hadn't even mentioned to him that I was up for the book club because I didn't think I would get it, so he was he was just kind of looking at it saying what i i don't I don't really understand what I'm looking at here like what 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 is this? What does this mean and oh, it was just the most beautiful thing. I had tears in my eyes I just to have gone through the kind of slog that I went through writing this book, and it was a real slog emotionally physically in so many respects, it was difficult this one to have gone through that and to come out the other end with a piece of news like that and to finally finally begin to see that actually potentially this was a good book that people might enjoy it it made all of the the struggle of the last few years worth it it was it was amazing i feel quite emotional just thinking about it <laughs>
0: well it's super exciting and congratulations i should have said that very first and i think that gma just does a wonderful job with their book club selections they really dive into all the aspects of the book and the author, and I just feel like they really just do a stellar job.
2: Yeah, I do too. And I I think, you know, the, the the creativity that goes along with it, you know, the number of video assets I've had to produce and written pieces and photographs, and, and I'm still nowhere near done. You know, that's a really wonderful thing. Like there's still, I've still got more filming to do. I've still got loads more interviews. I've got, you know, I've got to write some stuff. I've got Q and A's. I really, really love that. As I say, as you say, like they're come at it from every angle, and I guess you know they have such a diverse readership. You know, the members of the book club, the people who watch GMA, it feel it really feels very inclusive. Whereas other book clubs, not in the states necessarily, but around the world, you know, they they normally you sort of know what you can expect. Whereas with GMA, I've I've also noticed the diversity of the books they're publishing is extraordinary.
0: It is, and I always really like their picks the best. I feel like they have kind of gotten to the top in terms of the books that I like, and I'm always so excited to see what they pick. So I was glad when I saw it was yours.
2: Oh, I just what an honor! I can't believe it. And we we had a call late last night to say that um, it charted on the New York Times top ten bestseller list.
0: That's so funny that you said that because I was actually just thinking as soon as we hang up, I need to go look at the New York Times list because I don't want to mention it because I don't know whether it's gotten on it. Congratulations! That's fabulous. Thank you. As you can imagine, I've not really had much sleep. I definitely can imagine. Well, that is super exciting. That is truly just wonderful.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I, it's, it, it's beyond crazy for me. I mean, it's it's totally surreal. Ghosted uh, also hit the charts, the top 10. And I was I was not expecting that. But with this one, I was absolutely certain that it wouldn't for various reasons, which I won't go into. But there was not a part of me that thought that it would make it. So
0: that call last night was mind blowing. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, let's talk a little bit about what made writing this one so difficult.
2: Yeah. So, um, well, you're a mother. (laughs) I'm sure you have some idea of what it must have been, You know what it would have been like to try and write um, probably the most important novel of your career whilst you had two very young children. I can't imagine. So when I started writing The Love of My Life, my son was five months old, my first son. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I... It was an incredibly difficult time in my life. I suffered birth trauma and um you know my mental health in the months that followed was really not great. Nothing extreme or sort of immediately diagnosable, but I was I was really not in a good place and trying to you know just trying to get my brain assemble my brain, organize my brain into some sort of workable beast. <laughs> was incredibly difficult and every single day i was crippled with mum guilt you know what 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 am i doing sitting in this room writing a book and and i didn't really get much done cuz you know if i could hear my baby crying i went to him of course i did you know we'd hired him a lovely lovely nanny and she was only there 4 hours a day but it's i wasn't ready i was still breastfeeding i was exhausted i was getting no sleep i was full of self doubt So, you know, the plotting process for starters took months and didn't really get anywhere. And in fact, I found it so tricky. And my brain was just such a bowl of oatmeal that I just, in the end, I gave up trying to plot it and just started writing it blind, hoping that it would come together. And of course it didn't. Um, So I had numerous plot problems because I'd started out in such a sort of befogged state. I also, you know, in my personal life, I, I, you know, a lot happened, you know, I went through early motherhood twice and I went through pregnancy with my second child, my daughter, um, I'm really bad at being pregnant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am too. It was just awful. That's not a fun time. Absolutely awful. Both
2: times were the worst nine months of my life, hands down. So I went through that. I also had a brush with serious illness myself. And then of course we had the pandemic. So by the time I was trying to finish this book, I was in a state of just real anxiety and probably depression too. And I was heavily pregnant. You know, we were in first lockdown. Everyone was really afraid. You know, the world just stopped. It was so frightening. And so I really thought at times I was not going to be able to finish this book. I really thought I was actually not going to be able to be a writer anymore because, of course, when you're in that place, you know, your ability to, you know, to to remember the times when you have been capable and the times when writing has gone very well are not available to you. So, yeah, it was a very, very dark time. And a lot of the editing I did in what just felt like a, a fog of of hopelessness and fear and and so on. And, you know, at times I just thought, what am I doing? Like, this this is insane. I should not be doing this. I should not be writing this. But I'm so glad that I persisted because actually just that very slow, slow, gentle layering, which is all I was capable of. I think made the book much stronger and made the emotional content a lot more raw and accessible.
0: I do think it's so difficult those first few months with a young baby because you're tired already from being pregnant for all that time. And then you're so much more tired. My first two are 22 months apart. And I truly don't feel like I can remember those like, first two years that they were both around because it's just, it is a fog. I can't imagine trying to write a book. And then on top of it, you had the pandemic. And I remember my husband and I were talking about the pandemic when it first hit, and you were referencing how scary it was, because people really didn't know, okay, how horrible is this? And to have young kids at that point would have been very difficult, because mine were on their own. I mean, they were home, but they were teenagers, so they didn't really need me taking care of the little things or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I just can't even imagine all of that at one time.
2: Yeah, it was was incredibly intense, and at times I thought I was going to go under. It was, I mean, and it's... (sighs) When I talk to other mothers who, who, who either who are writers and didn't write when their children were really young or who aren't writers, I'm reminded that what I did was impossible and actually crazy. I don't know. I don't know why I persisted in doing it. But, you know, equally, I had, you know, all of these crazy book deals for Ghosted happened when I was pregnant with my son. And, you know, I was just caught up in the momentum of it and, you know, the belief you have as a writer that you've just got to keep on producing and producing and producing for your career to have any longevity. And of course, that's not true. You know, it ended up taking me four years to write that book. It was meant to take a year, it took four. And, you know, here I am in the extraordinary position of being in the top 10 New York Times top 10 bestseller list again. You know, it hasn't made a scrap of difference. And what's been really lovely, actually, is hearing So many readers on social media saying, oh, my God, I love Ghosted. I've been so excited waiting for, you know, for Rosie's next novel. And so none of that pressure I put myself under was necessary. None of it.
0: But I think it's natural. And you probably had people asking you, what are you working on now? When's your next book coming? Because I know that's a common question, not meant to put pressure, but more, as you just said, because people love Ghosted. So they're like, I can't wait for her next book. But on the flip side of it, it probably was creating pressure for you. But as you said, it worked out and your book turned out perfectly. And there's been great happiness around it. And obviously, it's going to be very successful.
2: <laughs> Even if I only spent one week on the list, that would be enough for me. It's, it's you know, as my partner said to me this morning over breakfast, you know, this is something that nobody can ever take away from me. My book really has been read by so many people that it hit the list. And you know, it's, it's, and it's for me, it's not just about being able to write, you know, write that on the front cover of future books, you know, New York Times bestselling author. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just that beautiful moment of pride and vindication after that incredible slog of blood, sweat, and tears to know, oh, wow, I wrote a book that people really, really, really want to read. And for me, you know, even if my career failed from this point on and nothing else happened again, I would always have that. It's a, it's a really, it's a really beautiful validation. And of course we shouldn't need the validations of things like book, you know, big book clubs and bestseller lists, because deep down we
0: should know if we've done something good, but good Lord, it certainly helps,
2: (laughs) especially when you're
0: exhausted. (laughs) I was just going to say it's very validating. And then you mentioned that as well, but yes, and not so much that you need the validation, but just knowing that you spent all this time on it and that it's making its way, out into the world, there are just so darn many books coming out all the time. So it's just nice to know that people are recognizing yours.
2: It is, and actually, you know, today I'm in a marathon of eight hours of um, radio and podcast interviews. But what is really, really beautiful for me is how much people have clearly loved the book, and I don't think they're making up. You can tell um, when somebody has really loved your novel, and that that for me is wonderful to be, you know, in the company of bookish people who read a lot of books and to know that they've loved your book is there's no feeling quite like it really it's I feel incredibly
0: lucky today I bet you do and I think you're exactly right I think when people really love it it shines through and you can tell in the way they're talking about the book and the questions they're asking so I definitely think people would not make that up
2: <laughs> I hope not
0: What about covers so I love your US cover and I was on your website a little bit ago and your UK cover is so different so I'd love to just talk about how the two different covers came about
2: well, US jackets and UK jackets, I think historically have always been very different, and that was not something that I knew until I got my first US deal, and it was a great surprise to me. I have to be honest, how differently each publisher approached approached a jacket. You know, in the UK, for both of my novels, it's been a very sort of typographical approach, and and that really worked. You know, it sold more than. Half a million copies in the UK, wow! Which yeah, and you know we're a pretty small country. It's extraordinary, and I'm very glad that I have a really experienced, brilliant, creative editor because she was she was single minded from the beginning. She knew exactly what she wanted, and we went through endless jackets, endless jackets to get it right, and 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 they got there. It was the same process for the UK for this one, endless, endless jackets because they knew exactly what they wanted and they wanted to be right. Um, Whereas in the States, the first jacket that they've shown us is the jacket that we've gone with. And that's really interesting to me because it's not like, you know, they kept getting it wrong in the UK. It's more just that they had a really clear vision. And unless, you know, I guess if you're an editor, unless you're able to do the artwork yourself, it's almost impossible to do that. Whereas I, I mean, I don't know what happens when they're working out how to make a jacket. All I know is that both of my US jackets have been absolutely beautiful. And I get so much feedback from readers about how beautiful the jackets are. And they make me happy whenever I look at them. You know, these are books that I would pick up off the shelf and, and read without question. And that's a really special thing. Because in my earlier career, I used to write a romantic comedy under a pseudonym. The jackets I had, they were, they were really, you know, they did a really fantastic job for what they were. But, you know, they, they did not advertise books that I would necessarily have picked off the shelf to read. So I'm profoundly grateful for these just very beautiful, very tactile, very grown-up jackets that I get to have now. I cannot stop just stroking my U.S. edition.
0: (laughs) It's just stunning. I mean, it's so pretty. And I loved Ghosted as well. That cover is great. And I know we're on a tight timetable, so I'm going to really quickly rush in my last question. What have you read recently that you loved?
2: Oh, my gosh. Well... I uh the, <laughs> one of the unexpected side effects of having a successful book is um that you get sent a billion novels to review. And so my bedroom is currently a real really sort of anxiety provoking place because there are just piles <laughs> of books that I still haven't <laughs> read and I and I want to, you know, I want to help people the way that people help, have helped me. So I haven't done any uh, reading for pleasure so to speak in a very long time because I'm constantly reading books for review quotes. That's not to say that the books I read aren't excellent, but actually, I've done two. I've read two novels for pleasure recently uh, because of authors that I'm doing events with. So I did an event with Ashley Audrain last week, and I finally got to read *The Push*, which I've been dying to read since I heard it announced in the book press. And oh my gosh, what an outstanding and extraordinary novel! I. I was breathless. And there was so much identification as a mother as well. I mean, luckily for me, I've not um, given birth to a psychopathic child. But, you know, that ex- the, the, the awfulness of motherhood at the beginning. Right. God, I was right there. And it's just such a visceral reading experience. And now I'm reading The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave, because I have an event with her on Saturday. And again, I'm just loving it. It's so good to be swept up in really polished, beautifully observed you know, pitch perfect, you know, psychological thrillers. I just it's such a treat to just read something for me. I'm I'm loving I'm loving it. I might just have to abandon my bedroom pile.
0: I bet you are. I bet that's crazy too, in terms of the number of books you get that people would love a blurb for. I can't even imagine. It's it's out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Well Rosie, thank you so much. This was just delightful. I'm thrilled to pieces that you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast and I can't wait for everybody to read The Love of My Life.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I've loved it too. I really appreciate it.
1: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of Seven Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.
1: Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.